I hope that they took him behind the shed and gave him a royal wedgie for this. <laughs> Swirlies in the latrine. Welcome to For You The War Is Over, a podcast about Second World War, Prisoner War Escapes, hosted by me, Dave. And me, Tony. And in this episode, we have Private Leonard Ernest Mann of the Queen's Royal Regiment of the 12th Division of the British Expeditionary Force. Not too much to find out on him to start, actually. 21 years old when he was caught from Ship Lake, which is just outside of Henley-on-Thames. Nice part of the world. Lovely, say, yeah. Let's say. Peacetime profession of working in agriculture. So I guess farmers or farmers' hands, something like that. The only thing I could really pick up on out of his war service is the actual regiment itself. It was the oldest at the time, having been formed in 1661 under Charles II. And it stayed that way until it was merged with the Queen's Royal Surrey Regiment in 1959. So that's about all I could find about their service, really. They spent a lot of the later part of the Second World War in Africa, but it appears that, as with a number of units at the start of the war, they were basically sent into France. As part of the British Expeditionary Force. Yeah, to sort of show that we were intent on what we were doing. And from looking at it, there wasn't much that they did. They, they sort of stayed in the Abbeville area until the advance of the Germans meant that they had to retreat. And by the look of it, Leonard got caught up in that retreat. So turning to his report, he's very much to the point. He does cover, as we'll see, a lot of things very quickly in very minor detail but he says i went to france with my regiment on the 20th of april 1940 on the 19th of may we were sent to abbeville during the retreat i lost my battalion and eventually joined a unit of lines of communication in the northern area and on the 8th of june i was captured there by the germans so he summed up several months of the British Expeditionary Force in two sentences. We were marched through France and Belgium into Holland and then taken over the Rhine to Cologne by barge. So picking up on his rather to-the-point nature already, he's just covered what must be around about a 500-kilometre journey in the space of a sentence. Of a sentence, indeed. And he, he continues to say, We stayed at a reception camp there for some days and then moved on to Essen. After several days, we were taken to Dortmund where we stayed for one day. Then we were taken by train to Stalag 21D, which is Shubin, on the 17th of July. I was sent immediately to a working party attached to Shubin. I worked on a canal until the 7th of September, when I was sent back to the main camp. So we've basically covered from April to September 1940 in six lines. Very little on detail. No early signs of looking to escape, like we've seen with some other people. Mm -hmm. Certainly up to this point... However, once he returned to the main camp, his escape antenna did seem to pick up a little bit. Right, okay. Because, he states, on the 25th of September 1940, I joined a working party to do farm work. I met Corporal Wooten of the Royal Tank Regiment and we decided to escape. On the 3rd of October, so just a few days later, we managed to get through the wire at dusk. This was comparatively easy as the guards were very slack and we were hiding behind a shed when one of the British NCOs came after us and ordered us to return, threatening to tell the Germans if we disobeyed. We returned to camp and I am sure that our attempt was unknown to the Germans. However, next morning at roll call, Wooten and I were called out of line. The Germans opened the gates, took out their revolvers and told us we could go if we wanted to. As a punishment, we were made to clean out the latrines for four days and then sent back to the main camp. Now, I want to pick up on the NCO here. Yes. 
Now, we've often talked about prisoner war camps in the past as being a little bit like boarding schools. Yes. Admittedly, that's more the officer camps than the NCO and other rank camps. However, within the context of the boarding school perception, I suspect that this NCO was the one who always told the teacher on all the other kids, sucked up to the teacher, reminded them when they'd forgotten to collect homework. I hope that they took him behind the shed and gave him a royal wedgie for this. (laughs) Swirlies in the latrine for stopping (laughs) Wooten and Mann from making an escape attempt, in which they've already got out of the wire. Yeah, that's true. He then stops them and orders them back. What a disgrace, (laughs) this man. I am... It's got to you, hasn't it? It perhaps goes without saying that on this podcast we are pro-escapes and pro-escape attempts. And so for for this unnamed NCO, and he is unnamed, we genuinely don't know who he is, yeah. but for this unnamed NCO to stop them, order them back, and then report them to the Germans is a disgrace. Mm. We are ashamed of this NCO. On behalf of Private Leonard Ernest Mann, we are there for you. There ends escape attempt number one. Exactly. So having taken their punishment of cleaning out the latrines for four days, following the disgraceful betrayal by unnamed NCO number one, the next escape attempt that they were to make was by tunnel. Okay. Now, on their return to Shubin, they were put into X Company, which was composed of the bad boys. So they were put into a compound separate from everyone else that was made up of almost like an internal cold, it's bad boy camp contained entirely within the camp at Shubin. So there were about 40 of them in this special part of the compound, which was wired off and closely guarded from the rest of the camp. And while awaiting trial for attempting to escape, they were given rough work to do. Now, I wanted to quickly pick up on that, because to be fair, we don't usually come across them being tried for escaping. No. Usually it's they're caught escaping and therefore sent to solitary for 21 days or 28 days or however long they're, they're sent to solitary for. Never really come across them actually being put on trial for it in that sense. No. Maybe the Germans presumed it was something that only the officers should be doing. And yet, as we know, it was many NCOs that actually managed to get out. Absolutely, yeah. So on the 23rd of October, he says, We were tried, pleaded not guilty and were let off but sent back to X company. I actually find this quite interesting because... Clearly, they have been put on trial, as I've just said, which is a little bit out of the ordinary. Having pleaded not guilty, they were then let off. Now, the only reason they were on trial for escaping is because they were reported by the NCO. NCO, And therefore, there was no actual evidence from the Germans' side to prove that they had been escaping. Hmm. Therefore, either the Germans avoided or refused to put this NCO up to give evidence, Mm -hmm. or he did give evidence, but they objected to the little snitch on a point of principle and just let them off anyway, which I very much doubt is the case. So I can only assume that he wasn't required to give evidence, and therefore, because they had no evidence of him escaping without the snitching NCO, that they had to let them off. However, clearly, because they knew that they had made an escape attempt because of the NCO, they were then sent back to this secure compound. So having been kept in this secure compound, they then started to dig a tunnel from inside their tent. Now that's interesting. We haven't come across much tented accommodation. In no, a, not a lot. No, particularly within a an established prisoner war camp, whereby usually it's some form of dormitory in a room. Yeah. Even if very, very basic, it usually is at least something a bit more structured than canvas yeah. on pole. And we're talking end of October mm. in occupied Poland. So... 
it's it's going to be quite cold. I mean, the winter of 1940 in the UK was seriously cold. I've seen photos of aeroplanes up to their wheels in snow, and that far from the coast, it's going to be there's not going to be a lot of warmth. It's going to be nippy, yeah, nippy in a tent. Yes, Mm. you're right. I imagine also the ground would be quite hard as Mm. well in the cold. So nonetheless, they've tried to start digging the tunnel from inside their tent. And he states, we tip the loose earth at night into the garden outside our quarters. Several of the men were working in the garden and this was an easy way of disposing of the soil. We concealed the tunnel opening with the straw on which we slept. Oh, so they're sleeping on the Well, they would be, of course, because inside the tent there wouldn't have been bunks. I also thought it was quite interesting, nice little parallel that they've disposed of the soil within a garden because, of mm. course, we have seen that, again, most famously in The Great Escape we have. with the penguins. Nonetheless, I can only assume they didn't get particularly far because he says that the job was never completed as we were sent to Stalag 21B, which is at Posen, which is now Poznan in Poland, on the 1st of November 1940. They were released from their punishment on the 15th of October, the trial was on the 23rd of October, and they've left the camp on the 1st of November. Mm-hmm. So, as I say, I can't imagine they've got particularly far, but nonetheless, he's made a escape attempt and mm. tried to dig a tunnel with his colleagues in this camp. And if you are going to put all the bad boys into one location, as cold as proves, we know precisely what happens. Exactly. So having been moved to Stalag 21B in Posen, there he met a couple of other NCOs and other ranks, getting to know Bombardier Williams of the Royal Artillery and Private Wall of Royal Northumberland Fusiliers. And together as a group, they decided to escape. So on the 23rd of November 1940, at dusk, they went out and cut the wire with a pair of wire cutters, which they'd managed to get from a Polish prisoner. Another prisoner of war had been instructed to distract the guard by talking to him and offering him cigarettes. We got out onto the road and made for the railway where we hoped to be able to jump a train for Warsaw. A goods train stopped under the signal and we climbed into the end truck. At 2100 hours the train stopped and the Germans served the train. We made a dash for it but I lost the other two and made for open country. So having got out with two others, Bombardier, Williams and Private Wall, he's barely got a couple of hours on a train before he's had to make a run for it and is now alone. Mm. Which is quite a precarious situation to be in, I would have thought, particularly given that we're heading towards late November now and the winter's only going to get worse from this stage on. Yeah. So he slept that night in the barn and the following morning he knocked at the farmhouse where the owner took him in and gave him some civilian clothing. And as it was Sunday, he had to stay in the farmhouse all day to avoid making himself conspicuous because, of course, no one would have been out working. Yeah. So he had to stay hidden. The following day, so on the 25th of November, the farmer took him in his cart and put him onto the rail track to Warsaw where he walked along the track all day and then spent the night in a barn again about 30 kilometres away. So he's made a decent... Yeah, decent, decent run. However, after only a couple of hours of sleep, a couple of poles came in. And while he at first pretended to be deaf and dumb, eventually he told them that he was British. Now, we've often seen before that luck can play a part oh, yes. in an escape. That and bicycle theft. Yes, yeah, the two the two are known to go things. hand in hand, actually. Indeed, yeah, but critical, yes. normally. Yes, luck thing. and bicycle theft. And so, by luck, having been challenged by these Poles in the barn that he's been sleeping in, turns out that they were members of the Polish underground movement. Very fortunate. Very fortunate indeed. And they kept him there for a couple of days, giving him some more clothing, which of course would help him assimilate. And in many ways, he'd stated earlier that the the clothes he'd been given by the previous farmer were quite old and a bit dingy. So being given slightly better quality clothes would also help him not attract notice. Mm -hmm. 
which is quite important when you're trying to assimilate into a country where you presumably don't speak a word of the language. Yes. And after that, he was taken by various guides to see a Polish officer who said he would help him get over the frontier into the territory of the general government of Poland. Now that interests me, because Mm -hmm. why would that be a good place to go at that time? Because obviously the Germans had invaded Poland right at the start of war, I mean, a year and a bit, 15 months beforehand. I mean, I appreciate wanting to get to a port, but what in particular about that region of Poland would be beneficial to his progress forward escaping? So, geographically speaking, there's no clear reason why. Because he's actually started to move east towards the Russians, who at this stage, as in November 1940, had not yet come into the war on the Allies' side. Mm. It was another six, seven, eight months before Germany invaded the USSR through Operation Barbarossa. So, geographically speaking, there's no obvious advantage. Over and above that, there's also no ports, so there's no immediately obvious exit route either there. However, on the flip side, it's not impossible that perhaps these contacts in the Polish underground had further contacts within that region. That could be helpful. That could be helpful, or there could have been a major train station there that they could have got him onto. I mean, he's he's been staying in farms, so he's clearly in quite a rural area, so Mm. there may not have been that many train stations in the area. So it could have been that they were trying to just connect him up with the infrastructure in order to help him on his way. However, he does say that the reason for that is actually they were trying to get in touch with the American embassy in Warsaw, which is crucial because they're still neutral at the time they're still neutral at this point most of the other embassies we've come across before where the embassy in paris i think was open for a while but they were obviously being closed down in other countries so yeah if it's still open that makes sense that that's where they were sending in exactly they're trying to make their way towards warsaw and so that they can get in touch with the neutral american embassy there good plan a very good plan actually And so on the 6th of January 1941, he was given a passport which stated that he was a deaf and dumb Ukrainian. Okay. And the Polish officer that he'd been put in contact with earlier accompanied him to within 20 kilometres of Czestokova, which was in the general government area. There, a German guard searched them, but let them continue on in their journey. And the Polish officer left him there, and another Pole took him on to Czestokova on the 9th of January when he was put into a monastery. Mm. Now, again, it's not the first time we've seen monasteries being used to provide shelter. Indeed, but mostly in Italy. Mostly in Italy, yeah, exactly. So continue on the medieval tradition of the church and monasteries offering sanctuary to people in need. Mm. And so after a couple of days in this monastery, it was there that he was actually told the full plan that the Polish resistance had formed for him, that he was making his way towards the American embassy. So up until this point, he'd actually been kept in the dark, which is actually quite a smart move, because then if he is captured, he can't give anything away. But it's at this point that they tell him that the ultimate aim is to get him to the American embassy in Warsaw. He was taken to Warsaw by a guide and housed by a member of the resistance organisation. And while there, a representative from the American embassy came to see him, but said that he could do nothing for him. Now again, that is not uncommon. So first of all, technically that's true, because of course man wasn't an American citizen. Yeah. Therefore he wasn't technically entitled to any aid from the American embassy. However, we have come across something similar to this before. If you remember in the escape 
of Basil Embry, Mm -hmm. where he managed to make it all the way to Paris and got himself to the American consulate. Which is where he had the awful American accent that they told him to stop. Yes. Yeah. He tried to pretend to be American. He tried to claim he was an American citizen and put on what can only be described as one of the worst American accents ever attempted, where the interviewer was actually laughing at his attempts and told him to stop. And so because of that, they weren't able to help him. What they did do in Embry's case was point him in the direction of a British employee at the American embassy who might be in a position to help him. That's right. And that's how he ended up getting some assistance in Paris. So we have come across something similar here whereby the embassy itself couldn't do anything officially to help him, but... In Embry's case, they were able to help him out a little bit, but in this case, in Mann's case, they haven't been able to do anything further. So what we have now is Private Mann in the middle of occupied Poland in January 1941 Mm -hmm. with no obvious route of escape or assistance other than his contacts to the Polish resistance. Mm. So, on the 14th of January, the resistance sent him to a house where he fell ill with stomach trouble and was actually eventually sent to hospital where he stayed for nearly a month until the middle of February. I mean, that's quite incredible because, I mean, obviously you've got the uh, you've got your cover that you have and we've mentioned before, but what happens if you talk in your sleep even? Because you know, you're going to talk in English and if you're a deaf, dumb Ukrainian... <laughs> yeah, if you're a deaf, dumb Ukrainian, it's going to stand out if you start speaking in English during your sleep. That's right. Questions would be asked, I am sure. But, exactly. But they managed to cover him in there for a month. Yeah. So he had originally planned to cross the River San. However, because he stayed in hospital, by the time he'd recovered, ice had formed on the river, making it more difficult to cross. And so he was moved around various small villages until on the 23rd of March, he was put on a train and taken with a guide to Tarnacek, where he lived and worked for several farmers throughout the summer of 1941. So we've now got to the 25th of October 1941, when he was again moved and eventually made his way to Warsaw in November 1941. He was then to live in Warsaw with a family until August 1943. We're approaching two years since he escaped. Yes. And he's moved around Poland back in Warsaw. Yes, he's actually barely moved any great distance at all. And during that time, the family that he was living with had a restaurant in Warsaw where he worked. Which, again, given he doesn't speak any Polish that we're aware of, at least at the point where he's captured, to pass himself off as a worker in a restaurant, which, of course, is customer-facing. Now, he could have been a porter or in the kitchen. Mm. Nonetheless, it's still a restaurant. You're still interacting with people. And I guess Germans, being in Warsaw. Exactly. He's kind of living by the seat of his pants a bit, I feel. Well, he does say, (laughs) I did like this line, he said, I also worked in a house in the suburbs where I was sent when things became dangerous. Now, I would have said he was probably in a fairly twitchy situation in the first instance. Yeah. But things got more dangerous at times that meant he couldn't do what was already slightly... Precarious? Precarious, yes, yeah. No, I, I completely agree. But again, it goes back to his preference for rather pithy descriptions for what would otherwise be deemed risky. Risky, yes. I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of information I feel we're not being given here through his report. Yes, indeed. And so during the time that he was staying in Warsaw, he was contacted by another resistance organisation which helped British servicemen. And he says that they paid him regularly and looked after his welfare. Now, I'm not entirely sure what the source of this assistance would be. I can only assume that there may have been some sort of help from the Allies through some route. We're certainly well into 1943, so Russia, America and the British were all allied, plus various governments in exile as well. Hmm. 
While he was hiding in the house just outside of Warsaw, a secret radio station, which he says was either under British or Russian control, which was hidden in a house nearby, was raided by the Germans. And during that raid, they spotted one of the men from the radio station running across the garden of the house that man was in. And so the Germans came and searched it, presumably looking for the man from the radio station. But if we're talking earlier about his description as when things became dangerous, I think we're at peak danger at this stage. This is, this is high on the danger stakes, I think. Exactly. And his report states, My host was in Warsaw and the servant and I were alone in the house. I went upstairs and lay on the bed pretending to be ill. They burst into my room and dragged me off the bed. I pretended to be deaf and dumb, but they whipped me down the stairs. They were taking me away under escort when the servant explained to a Polish policeman that I was a deaf and dumb Ukrainian who was very ill. After some hesitation, the Germans let me go. Now that's a bit more detail than he's previously been wont to provide. But my word, did he come close to recapture there and presumably some fairly hefty treatment too had they discovered who he really was. Well, it does seem that things get a little bit closer still. Things continue to get hairy. Because he states, after this, the mayor of the town became suspicious and sent his wife to make furtive inquiries at the house where I was living. My host bribed them with whiskey and cigarettes and after that there were no more incidents. Good choice. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. Send the wife away having loaded her up with whiskey. Yeah, it's fine. I don't see the issue. Now, I think it is worth pointing out at this stage that while cigarettes may have still been relatively common compared to a number of rationed items, I can't imagine that whiskey was a common item in occupied Poland of 1943. So this must have been very, very rare and therefore very, very valuable. So that's a big bribe to pay. Or very locally produced. On occasion, I have taken to drink some stuff in Eastern Bloc countries. <laughs> I don't think you could call it whiskey. You could certainly run a car on it. Is that why your eyesight's going? It possibly. <laughs> <laughs> possibly. It was normally fairly clear coloured liquids and uh, they make your heart beat quite quick. So. Mm. Because of the danger that he was quite evidently under, on the 1st of August 1943, he was obliged to move on, and his host sister had been arrested in Krakow by the Gestapo, and it was suspected that the Germans would start questioning the rest of the family. So it's not just the danger he's in by the locality and the local community, it's also the danger that's presented by the family that he is staying with now. Mm. And so he was moved on to another house in the suburbs and stayed there until October, helping in the house and garden. When, on the 3rd of October, the family moved to Warsaw, he went to work in a small private factory nearby. But shortly after this, his host was arrested by the Germans, and so he took up staying inside the workshop of the factory. So he's now basically dossing mm. in a factory that he's living in. He isn't even staying in one of these workers' camps that we've come across before. He is just dossing down in the workshop of the factory that he's working in while hiding out in Poland. Yeah. And in fact, this was to become a bit of a running theme because by December 1943, he was again moving on and sleeping wherever he could, moving about the district as things were getting, quote-unquote, rather dangerous there. Yes. The way he plays this down is incredible, isn't it? Very underplayed and very... I would have said all of this has been dangerous for probably about the last... Two and a half years? Two and a half years, yes. Yeah. By January 1944, he was back in Warsaw, was now actively helping the partisans in the general distribution store. So, of course, by 44, things were heating up in Poland. Mm. Although D-Day hadn't taken place yet, the Russians were very much actively pushing the Germans back through Russia towards Poland. Mm. And the Polish on the ground were getting very active by this stage. And so it looks like he's effectively been brought on board by the Polish partisans. 
And indeed, he states that in February 1944, he had to leave Warsaw as the partisans were being split up and sent off to different places. Now, he was sent to an estate which was being used as a general hideout for Poles who had been in trouble with the Germans, of which he must have known many (laughs) by the signs of it after this long hiding out in occupied Poland. And by March 1944, he was back working with the partisans, smuggling ammunition and stores between a number of different locations around Poland. By the end of May, he had to stop doing this because the Germans were becoming suspicious and so he ended up having to sleep in open fields in order to hide out from the Germans who were looking for him by this stage. So he's playing a very high-stakes game of roulette. By He is, and what this must have been doing to his conscience must be incredible. Constantly looking over his shoulder. Yeah, every single his day. nerves must have been shredded by this stage. Yeah. So having now spent the majority of 1944 working for Polish partisans and resistance movements, by the 1st of August 1944, the Russians had advanced to a relatively nearby location and so he decided to make contact with them. So he was in Warsaw at this time and he managed to get to the Russian lines by going along the banks of the Vistula River. When he got to the Russian headquarters, the officer who interviewed him said that there was nothing he could do for him and told him to stay nearby until the commission could take him to Moscow. Somewhat reminiscent of the American attitude. Hmm. However, things were to become a little bit more difficult and go downhill a little bit with his relations with the Russians. Because on the 16th of August 44, he states, I was stopped by a Russian soldier in the street. He thought I was a sympathiser with the Polish government in exile in the UK, as I was wearing red and white and blue stripes on my arm for identification purposes. He made me go with him to the Russian headquarters where they threatened to hand me over to the Lublin Committee. So the Lublin Committee, or its official title was the Polish Committee of National Liberation, was an executive authority established by the Soviet-backed communists in Poland in the later stages of the Second World War. And it effectively functioned in opposition to the London-based Polish government in the exile, which was recognised by the Western Allies. This was the Russians setting up their alternative puppet government. I see, yes, okay. And it exercised control over Polish territory retaken from the Nazis by the Soviet Red Army and the Polish People's Army, and therefore was sponsored by the Soviet Union and dominated by Polish communists. So if he's been arrested under suspicion by the Russians of being a sympathiser for the Polish government in exile in the UK, he's actually under quite a lot of danger here because, as we know with the benefit of hindsight and history, communist rule in Poland was going to become very difficult for anyone who had not been fighting on the side of the Red Army directly. Not necessarily on the side of the Allies, but who had not been actually fighting under the direction of the Red Army. Mm. They were treated quite appallingly. Well, I mean, we saw with the returning Poles after the war, yeah. didn't we? There was a lot of hardship for Poles returning to the country that had fought with the Allies, to the, to the extent that quite a number did not return to Poland after mm-hmm. the war. So under threat of being handed over to the Lublin Committee, he escaped that night from Russian custody with some other Poles while they were marching through a wood. And on the 17th of August, he was taken to a friend's house, because of course, after two and a half, three years in Poland, he will have by this stage made a lot of contacts and connections. Hmm. But he was again taken by the Russians and was interrogated by the NKVD, which was actually the precursor to the KGB. Wow. So he's under quite a lot of threat by this stage. And on the 20th of August, he was then taken to Radzin, which is where he met up with Private Easterbrook. Wow, from our last episode. From our last episode. And it was from this stage onwards that they then proceeded together. And we did mention Private Man in the Easterbrook episode. Yes, we did. So they were put under close guard in a house for a couple of days and were joined by another civilian. 
when a Russian officer told them that negotiations were being made with the British Embassy in Moscow for their return, as we said in the Easterbrook episode, we won't retread over old ground Hmm. too much, but just to bring everything together on the same page. They got tired of waiting and so decided to try and escape again, but the Russians became suspicious, rightly so, as it turned out. Hmm. So they were put to work in a field, saving their money to try and make another escape. Now, they did manage to slip away and make their way to an address of a possible helper, but they were unable to make contact with these helpers because the Russians were in control of that house. And so, while on the run, they ended up sleeping in the barn. And if you remember, during the night, some Russian soldiers came and found them, but thinking they were Germans, threatened to shoot them. And it was only because they were able to convince them that they were British that they ended up marching them back to the nearest Russian headquarters, where they were again cross-examined. However, clearly word was getting out that the Russians had a couple of British soldiers, servicemen, in their custody. And while they were still under arrest and being treated pretty badly. I mean, if you remember, they were handcuffed and left in a pigsty for a while. They were slowly but surely starting to make their way back towards Moscow. And eventually they were taken first to Minsk by air, and then eventually on to Moscow by November 1944. And from there, they were taken to the British Embassy in Moscow on the 2nd of December, who who put them on a train to Murmansk and left Murmansk via the Arctic convoys, returning back to the UK on the 10th of December, arriving in the UK on the 18th of December, 1944. So we're talking about a full four years after his initial escape. Crikey. I mean, that is... That's heavy going on the nerves. Hmm. Because he was constantly under threat of arrest while living... And working. And working in an occupied country where he presumably, at least at the point of capture, had absolutely no word of the language to his name. Absolutely. Now, we have to assume he probably mastered at least a few words in four years in Poland, but nonetheless, that's incredibly impressive going to survive that long in a foreign country with very little command of the language and to work for the partisans and resistance movements as well, helping them fight against Germany an occupation indeed and he unfortunately falls into the category where we don't actually know anything else the only reference i could find was on the 26th of july 1945 there's a mention in the gazette of him being awarded the military medal i could not find a citation but one would have thought that with four years of living in secrecy in in an occupied country he was probably awarded the military medal for that escape attempt you would have to assume so i can't imagine he saw too much more action in 1945 I, i would have thought by the time he rested and recuperated on the way back there was probably little point in him continuing in service but unfortunately there is no other mention of him at all i could find sadly nothing i could find no reference to him his personality family or anything on research he disappears following the 26th of july 1945 which isn't of course as we know not uncommon for an escaper from the ranks of an nco or other ranks it's mm. if anything more common than not yeah Well, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed that. If you'd like to subscribe, we're on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, or indeed any of your favourite podcast platforms. Or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook by searching at F-Y-T-W-I-O. Or if you want to send us a more long-form message, you can email us at F-Y-T-W-I-O podcast at gmail.com.